For those of you who have been with us for some time, you know that we have been working our way through the New Testament. We've been doing a high-level overview of books. So we've been taking one, you know, in the case of some of the letters, we kind of blumped them together. And the purpose of all of this is to give you a framework or a grid of sort of overarching themes that exist in these different letters and books so that when you go to sit down and read them yourself, you can keep in the back of your mind what it is ultimately that the writer of that story or that letter is intending to do for his audience and therefore us as the church. So often we go to our daily devotionals or uh, we pick up the book, or the Bible, and we open to a book and we read a section and we concentrate on that particular section, but it can be difficult to understand how that fits in the larger work that is before us unless you sit down and you read a book from beginning to end as you would read a, a novel. You can, you can miss some of the larger themes. And in some cases, they're buried in there and it takes uh, some, some intense study to really bring them out. And so what we're trying to do is to go through the books of the New Testament that are in our canon and provide the groundwork, the framework to then begin to go read these books and study them. And then when we're done with that, we're going to go back and then we're going to start to take book by book and, and get into them verse by verse. But today we're going to look at the, the book of John. We have done a couple of the letters. We started the whole process with Revelation. We decided we we're going to get the easiest one out of the way first. We, we knocked that one out and talked uh, about it. And then we went and did a couple letters. And then we started back at the beginning with, with the gospels. And we have done the three that are called synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called synoptic gospels because they are the synopsis or the story of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ministry. And then John, it does tell some of those same stories, but its purpose is a little bit different. It's much more of a theological text. And we're going to talk about that today. As we do that, we're going to get to our, our the scripture we're going to study in here in a moment. Before we do that, I want to give a little bit of thematic information just about what John is trying to do in terms of some, a couple themes that run through the entire books. Uh, but before we can even do that, I need to throw out a warning. I just want to get this out of the way because it is important and it doesn't get talked about and we need to address it. And that is the degree to which John is a book that is anti-Jewish. And it is. Unfortunately, in the past, this book has been taken and used to justify horrible atrocities, not least of which was the Holocaust in, in the last century. There are passages in here where Jesus himself addresses his Jews in a less than ideal way. In fact, at one point, he tells them that they are sons and daughters of their father, the devil. And that passage in particular has been lifted out of its context and made to say that God has forgotten his people, that they are on the wrong side and they must be eliminated. What we need to understand is that John, as he writes his book, deals with dualities. And so he is going to talk about light and dark a lot. He will talk about good and evil. And he has these two ends of the spectrum and he sort of, everything for him is black and white. You're either, you're in or you're out. And that's the way he tells his stories. That's just sort of one of his operating principles. And when it comes to this sort of anti-Jewish theme in his text, what it is not is anti-Semitic. And that is what has been used, that, that the Jews are terrible. What what John does is for those who are of the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, who decide that they're going to not listen to Jesus and reject him, he calls them Jews. And then when he wants to address that same demographic, those same people, and if they follow Jesus, if they buy into what he says, if they become people of faith and disciples, they then are part of Israel. And so in the same way he has light and dark, good and evil, he uses the term Jew for those who will reject him and Israel for those who will accept him. And so built in is not only an anti-Jewish 
sentiment, but also a very pro-Israel sentiment. And so he uses these terms specifically, and it's important to understand how he's using it so that we don't read this text and walk away and think, God hates the Jews. Because that is not what God thinks. That's very clear in Paul. And it is not the proper way to understand what, what John is trying to say. And so I just need to get that out there. Like I said, unfortunately, that doesn't get addressed enough. And when you go read these, these texts, this text, uh, and you read John, you know, and Jesus in particular, berating the Jewish people, I don't want you to walk away thinking what so many have wrongly thought. Okay, so that, that warning will sort of set to the side now. As far as themes, there are two main themes that we would sort of draw out and talk about. And, and the first is John's importance, the importance he places and the focus that he puts on his Christology. So John is unique, as I mentioned earlier, in, in the way that he handles theology. You could read the other three gospels and put them down and walk away and not know that Jesus is God. It doesn't, the other three don't really explicitly say it. They use terms that are understood to mean that, like son of man. There's even a conversation about son of God, but we've talked before about how those terms exist in a, in a context and a culture of Israel. And those were all terms meant for the Messiah. And the Messiah was expected to be the person, the man that God would send to reestablish Israel as the people of God, to free them from the Roman oppression. And it was not expected. One of the big shocks and one of the reasons that most of the Jews did not accept Jesus was that he claimed to be God. That was a complete surprise. And those synoptic gospels, they hint at it. They certainly do not deny it. Don't hear me say that. They accept that, but that's just not the purpose of their story. Their story was to tell Israel that your Messiah has come. And oh, by the way, big surprise, it happens to be God. John, however, cares very much that we know this. And he starts his gospel that way. If you know the opening of, of John, it says, in the beginning, there was, there was the word, right? And the word was with God and the word was God. And so he begins his gospel by telling us that the word, which he will then go on to say the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, right? That's Jesus was in the beginning, back at the very beginning, he was God, he was with God, Jesus is God. So he starts that way, right out of the gate. And so he has a very high Christology, and that's something that he will develop throughout the book. We've talked about how the other gospel writers pick up themes of uh, Exodus and talk about how what Jesus is doing is the new and better and more perfect Exodus, which is true. We've talked about, uh, particularly with Matthew, how he portrays Jesus as the new Moses, the new and better, more perfect Moses. John will use those themes, but what he wants you to understand even more than that is he's not telling a... So in, in that case, like the, the Moses and the Exodus are like types of stories, right? Jesus, those are Moses and the Exodus were a Jesus-type story, and Jesus is a type. They're similar, right? They, it's, it's, it's a model, but they both fit. What John is telling us is an actual new creation story, and that's why his first two words are in the beginning, which in the Greek version of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, is the exact same phrase that's used in Genesis 1.1. John starts his gospel with the same words that the Hebrew texts open up with in the beginning. John's is a story of creation. This is basically, he's retelling the creation story. He's telling us that God is once again going through the process of creation, and this time it's with Jesus. And so we get those words in the beginning. We get Jesus was with God, Jesus was God. And then you get, and the word was made flesh, right? That is the equivalent to God making Adam and Eve in the New Testament, right? Here is the God making man. This time it is the God man. So this is the new creation, the recreation narrative that John is putting forth to us. Later in the gospel, we will, towards the end, we will see Pilate 
Pilate, as you recall, is the prefect, the Roman prefect who is in charge and will ultimately make the decision to agree to the, the leaders of the Jewish people that Jesus needs to be crucified. And in presenting him for what would be the scourging and then the, the crucifixion, he does two things. He puts a, a sign above him on the cross, right? And do you remember what that reads? I think I heard it louder. King of the Jews, right? Which he means ironically, obviously. As the Roman powerhouse, they often would crucify those who made competing claims to the crown. And to say that I am Lord, I am God, would be a competitive claim against the emperor. And so when someone did that, as other people rose up, as a matter of fact, and claimed to be messiahs and uh, wanted to free Israel, Rome would come crushing down on them and they would crucify them. And they did so in an ironic way. And so Pilate means this to be tongue in cheek, ha, 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 look at your king. But what we know is that God uses that to say, here is in fact the king of the Jews. And so it carries with it quite a bit of irony. The other thing that Pilate says in John's gospel as he presents Jesus before he is to go through this is, here is the man. And this is intended to be, again, from Pilate's perspective, here, here's the guy. From John's perspective, as he tells the narrative, he wants us to see, here is mankind, here is humanity, here is the man, here is the woman, here is the creation that I've meant to be, here is the model. And so Pilate announces this to him. So from beginning to end, we have sort of bookends of the new creation or the recreation, the, the retelling of the Genesis narrative through the creation and the ministry and ultimately the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And so his story is very much a new creation. And so those two things are bound up very tightly with John. So we have this high theology about who Christ is, the fact that he is both man and divine. And then we have this sort of creation narrative being retold through his life and ministry. It is in fact, John, where the early church, as they have quarrels and debates about Jesus and his life and who he was, and in about the 300s, there arose a real big debate about was Jesus always divine or was he a created, sort of the first creation? And, and it raged for centuries, but they would turn to John and it would be John that would provide the clarity that would, that would develop what we know as Orthodox Christianity that says that it is a trinity, that it is three persons in one, right? John provides us that theology. So that's sort of the opening foray that I wanna run you through as we go to the scripture that we're actually looking at today. And for us today, we are gonna turn, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. It's chapter 20, it's verses 30 to 31. And the, one of the reasons I'm going here, you'll see very quickly, is for John, this is his purpose. The other gospels don't really tell us why they wrote. We can decipher from what they wrote, who they were writing to, and why they said what they said. Uh, but John actually explicitly says, this is why I wrote this book, and that comes here at the end. And it says the following. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. And so John very explicitly tells us why he's written this book, why he's included what he's included, that there was much other that Jesus did that just doesn't fit in the text, but he's selected what he's put in here so that we may come to full belief. Some people read that and they think, oh, this is an evangelistic text. So John is gonna be the thing that we're gonna take out to the people that don't believe, we're gonna put it in front of them, and this is the way that God is going to teach them. That's not untrue, but what John, and we're gonna see here in a minute, this is what we're gonna kind of talk through today. What John is putting forth is not 
not necessarily uh, a text that's going to just lead you from non-belief to belief, but rather a text, the story, the journey that takes you from the beginning of belief, this moment when you say, oh, Jesus is something that I'm interested in. I think there's something there to the moment ultimately that we're gonna look at Thomas when Thomas says, you are my Lord and my God. And you come to the full recognition, the full belief that Jesus is both man and God embodied. He is the Messiah, he is the divine son. And so John's purpose here is to get us from point A, initial belief, to a full recognition of who this man, Jesus is, right, in his dual nature. We're gonna go back and I'm gonna talk you through the first few chapters of John, and we're gonna see how this sort of journey takes place. If you recall, what is the first, what is the first miracle, the first story that's told in John? It only is told in John. Yeah, it's, he turns water to wine at the wedding feast, okay? So that's John's first narrative as to how he, after he gets done with his introduction about the word and the word was God, the word was with God, and he becomes flesh and dwelled among us. He launches into the story about Jesus reluctantly. His mom comes and kind of bugs him. It's like, hey, they've run out of wine. Jesus is like, don't bother me, right? I'm not, I'm not gonna do that. He finally relents and he turns water to wine. And we're told at the end of that, that his disciples believed in him. And what we need to recognize is that what the what the character or the nature of that belief for his disciples is, is not this full recognition of who God is. That's very clear in the story as Jesus talks to them and teaches them and they question and they, they don't understand. It's not until the end that they understand. So it's this very sort of beginning, there's something to you, God is present with you, I'm gonna trust you, put my faith in you, but they don't yet recognize what it is and who he is, what it is that he's come to do and who exactly he is. The next story he tells us is about Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And this is one of those points where you see John employ the term Israel. He, told, he says that Nicodemus is a teacher of Israel. So Nicodemus is seen in a positive light. He's using that term for Nicodemus. And there's this debate in chapter two. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, we know that God is with you because you could not do the things that you do apart from God's presence. So he acknowledges that God is with Jesus. But then he goes on to question what Jesus means by being born again. How can somebody enter into their own mother's womb one, one more time? And Jesus goes into this explanation. But what we see here is Nicodemus recognizing and acknowledging that there's something special about Jesus. There's something going on. God is with him. He ought to be followed. He should be believed in. But Nicodemus has no idea what's actually coming and who this man actually is. And then again, the next story that he, he tells in succession is the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus has crossed over into Samaria, which is a place that he should not be. Those are two races of people that have a long history and feud between them, and they did not talk to each other. So the fact that he's there at all is controversial and sort of a scandal. Um, but he comes to the well, and he, he speaks with this woman. They have this conversation. And at the, by the end of it, she recognizes who he is. He says, I will give you living water. And she says, I want this living water. And so she comes to a belief in him in some way. Again, doesn't get it fully but then she ends up running back to the town and gathering the townspeople and bringing them back to the, the well. And so there's this moment of people sort of flocking to Jesus in belief to understanding that God is doing something here, right? And so they say, we believe, but they have no idea yet what's going on. And then the last one we're gonna talk about is the next story. And that is the, the royal official that comes to Jesus. His child has died. In, in a different town. He's come to, he's traveled to Jesus to ask for him to bring him back to life. And Jesus assures him that it will happen. And he goes away and he meets his messenger from his house about halfway and finds out that the day before, at, at, I think it's roughly one o'clock in the story, when Jesus said your, your child is saved, 
this messenger says he came back to life. And so there's this moment where he, you know, has his eyes open and believes, but again, what does he believe? He has no idea that certainly Jesus is actually God in flesh. He has no idea that he's God's son. He doesn't know, they don't know yet that he's the Messiah. They just know that there's this man who has been sent who does these miraculous things and only through the power of God could he do it. So he's worth listening to, he's worth following, he's worth believing in. And so the rest of the story that John tells in terms of his gospel is meant to help us and his early churches. You have to recall that John is writing to a people who are largely or have been Jews. They are Jews. Christianity in its early days was a sect of Judaism. They were the people of the Jewish faith that believed that Jesus was the Messiah they had been waiting on. And for quite a while, they existed in the synagogue. So they would gather and there'd be the people who believed in Jesus over here. There'd be the people that didn't hear. There'd be the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, like all these different kinds of Judaism existed. And Christianity was just one of those things. But at the time John's writing about the turn of the first century, so about 70 years after Jesus has come and died and resurrected, tension had been building because it was becoming very apparent that those beliefs that, Jesus, that, that Christians had about Jesus and what Judaism, the Jews were saying about Jesus, could not coexist. And so they were being sort of thrust out of the synagogues. They were becoming their own people, their own religion, their own faith, apart from the Jewish nation. And at the same time, they were incorporating Gentiles which is another problem altogether, which we've talked about and we'll address another time. But there's this, there's this period of tumultuousness and, uh, and, and transition in which these people find themselves. And so John is writing to them to help them grasp who it is that Jesus is and move through their period of transition as he talks through the stories of Jesus and shows us disciple after disciple who move from recognition that something's going on to ultimately full belief in who Jesus is and what he's sent to do, all right? And so he says again, and I'll repeat, that the purpose of John's gospel is ultimately belief, full, real belief in Jesus as he is, both man and God. Right before this passage, John has given us a little scenario, and this is the story about Thomas. Who knows what Tom, who Thomas is? Yeah, Sarah. Sorry, he was a disciple. Yeah, they doubted. If you ever heard the term the doubting Thomas, it's from this guy, all right? And what happens is, we're gonna, we're gonna read this. Um, this is a week after Jesus has been raised. It says, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where, where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. You gotta remember that their, their Messiah has just been crucified as a, as a revolutionary. And so they are terrified to follow Jesus, to have been following Jesus was to have put yourself on the line for Jesus. And if you were found out to be one of his followers, there was a high likelihood that you were gonna end up on a tree also. And so they were, they were fearful of the other Jews that might out them. So they were locked up in this room. The doors were locked, he tells us. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. When the disciples rejoiced, when they saw the Lord, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And as the father has sent me, I send you. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And then, so there's this moment when Jesus returns to his disciples to present himself. Thomas was not there. And verse 24 reads, says, but Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. So here's the doubting Thomas, right? Here's, unless I see it for myself, I'm not gonna believe it. 
A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, You have believed because you have seen me. Or have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. And then John tells us his purpose of the book. I have written all these things that you may have belief on the foot right after having told us the story about Thomas. Why does he tell us about Thomas? Why does he put the story of Thomas right there? Right? That's, that's always a question as we're asking why these, especially the gospel writers, put what they put where they did. Because what we know is Jesus had a whole bunch of things that he did. And these writers are taking the different parts and pieces and they're putting them into a story to serve a larger purpose to tell us about Jesus. That's why you, when you read, and please don't get hung up on the fact that some of the stories are out of order from gospel to gospel. They're not telling us a chronological history. They're telling us a narrative history in which they're putting these pieces together to portray to us the truth of Jesus, okay? So we always ask the question, what comes before, what comes after, why is it in this part, in this place? And so when we come to the purpose, we say, well, why does that come right after Thomas? Sure, he has completed, like, he's right, right? So Thomas makes this profession. So this is, here is the disciple who has started out making this beginning moment of sort of kind of belief in something about Jesus, that God is present, to the moment where he looks at Jesus and says, my God and my Lord, all right? That he makes that recognition. So that's sort of the high Christological moment, the high moment when, when who Jesus truly is is professed and it's put on the lips of Thomas, Okay. Right, right. And so John's purpose is, what, I, what, I, what I'm telling this whole story for is that so that you can go on that journey as well, so that you can come to that belief. That's exactly right. One of the other points that I think is important for us to understand is the stories in here, uh, one of the purposes it serves is to tell us that it's okay to doubt. How many of you have grown up in a church or been told, don't ask that question, or that's just not something we talk about? Here is Thomas, one of the disciples, rejecting the risen Lord based on the testimony. If there's anything that was Christians we ought to not doubt, it's probably that, that piece. If there's anything that Thomas probably should have accepted, it was the risen Lord, and yet he won't. And it's important for us to understand that doubt is okay. He puts it here because he wants you to know that doubt is part of the process. You have to go through your doubt. You have to deal with your doubt in order to get to the moment that you can say, God is my Lord and my God, that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God. We need to embrace the d- doubt. We need to put it out in front We need to bring it to God, bring it to Jesus, bring it to the Spirit, and allow Him to help us through it. It, in fact, does us no good and, in fact, harm to listen to the voices that have said, don't ask that question, don't think about that, just go on, put that in a box over here and don't think about it. You know what that's called? It's called repression. It's a psychological phenomenon. It's unhealthy and it puts you in therapy. (laughs) When you repress things and go on like everything's normal, you end up on a couch talking to a psychologist or worse. It's repression. And so what I want to say to you very loudly and clearly is it's okay to question. It's okay to doubt. John tells us that. He gives us the model of Thomas who doesn't believe. And he says, I'm not going to buy it unless I see it for myself. Y'all, that's okay. Do you think God can't handle your doubt? Do you think God is surprised by the fact that you have this hang-up, whatever it is? Do you think you read a story that seems fantastical and you're like, I don't know about that. You're in your room and God didn't see you say, I don't know about that, right? God knows. It does you no good to come in here and pretend that you got everything together. You have no questions. We all have questions. 
We'll talk about mine another day, but we all have questions. What John is encouraging us to do is not to bury our doubt, not to ignore it. He wants us to deal with it, to put it out there, to be honest with God and each other about it so that we can move past it, that we can deal with it, and that we can come to this moment of full belief where we no longer have this hang-up or this burning little question in the back of our head that is preventing us from giving ourselves over fully to Jesus. That's the journey that's being taken here. Let's go back to Nicodemus in a minute. I told you earlier that he was the Pharisee, the teacher of Israel, that was questioning Jesus about this whole idea of rebirth. He recognized something was going on. Nicodemus, like a lot of people come and go in the, in the stories. They, you know, they, they serve a purpose, but they're never seen again. Nicodemus is one that shows up again. And you know where he shows up again? At the crucifixion at the burial, right? When they go to take the body down and put him in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, it's Nicodemus, John tells us, that brings the myrrh and the spices and the oils to anoint his body. So what we, what we see Nicodemus do is move this moment from this moment when he has questions, this moment when he's fully a disciple and loves and cares for his God. Does he at that point understand? We still don't know, right? We, we haven't had the resurrection. We haven't had this moment. But we definitely see a progression in Nicodemus. So Nicodemus tracks along this journey that we all must go. And John gives us his story from that for that reason. He moves from skepticism to discipleship. The model of John is a faith that comes from approaching the stories and witnesses with our doubt and anxiety, not pretending that they don't exist, expecting and allowing the Spirit to help us through that doubt. That's the promise of John's gospel. We say, help my unbelief, give me proof. And what happened? When Thomas says, I don't believe it, I need to touch it, what happened? Jesus showed up. Jesus shows up. And we kind of skipped over, and we'll deal with this another day. But how does Jesus show up? This is fascinating. In both moments, both weeks, right, the, the disciples are terrified. Where are they? We read, and that's kind of in, intimated where they are. Locked in a room. Locked. Doors shut. He, John is careful to tell us both times. The doors are shut. And what happens? Jesus just shows up, right? He didn't, he didn't open the door. He didn't crawl through a window. They're all in a locked room, and boom, there's Jesus. Think about that one overnight, and we'll talk about that one later, right? John's telling us something particular about the resurrection. There's something important there, um, but that's, a, that's another story for another day. But what happens when Thomas doubts, he says, I need to touch, I need to put my hand in the side where the, that, he's alluding to the, the, mo, or the point where the spear pierced Jesus' side when he had on the cross. He says, I need to see the wounds for myself. I need to see him resurrected. And as they're in the room together, here comes Jesus. All right, have at it. What doesn't happen? I'll read it to you again. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord, my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed? What doesn't happen? He doesn't touch him. Thomas says, I've got to see it. I've got to touch it for myself. I've got to touch it. And Jesus shows up and says, bam, touch me. And in that moment, Thomas says, oh, I get it. Here's the point. Take your doubt, take your worry, take your concerns, take your unbelief to Jesus because Jesus is bigger. And when he shows up, whatever your doubt is, all of a sudden doesn't matter. It's not that the answers get given to you. It is that Jesus comes to you with such power and such grace and such mercy that when you have a question, and this, is, this has been my experience, that you know, I've gone through some dark times in my life, not the least of which was 
dealing with my son who was on a ventilator for six months at two months or six weeks at two months old. Like that was a traumatic experience. And in the wake of that, I had a lot of doubt, not about a miracle story, but like, God, how could this happen? I wanted an answer. And so often we want answers, but I had a choice. I could shove it under the rug. I could go on and pretend like life is fine. Nothing happened. Everything's hunky-dory with God. I didn't do that. I had, I had some tough conversations with God in which I said things that I will not repeat from this pulpit. <laughs> That's okay. God can handle that. And what I found is I didn't get an answer. I can't tell you, stand here today and tell you why that happened. What I can tell you is God is good. That in my grief and my sorrow and my struggle and my screaming, down on my hands and knees, pleading with God, what in the world are you doing to my son? Why are you doing this? God shows up. And I don't have an answer, but all of a sudden I know it's okay. That God is, God is so much bigger than my question that the question becomes dwarfed. The doubt becomes insignificant. It becomes a thing I don't understand, not a thing that stands in the way of my belief in God. Does Thomas need to touch him when he's standing right there? What I want to say to you today is, and what John, I think, is, is telling us very clearly through this story, is it is absolutely okay for you to have questions. Some of you don't know me. Some of you know me pretty well. I love questions. If you've got questions, let's talk. I don't have all the answers, but I love working through them. We've had some doozies that have come up in the past. And I've sat on couches with people and cried and prayed. Because the hardest things to deal with are not, did he really feed 5,000 people with fish? Right? Okay, it's, it's a miracle story. That's really not the difficult thing. The difficult thing is, why did my mom die? Why did my cousin get sick? Why did you, God tell me to take this job and then six months later, you ripped it out from underneath me and ruined my life? Those are real questions that cause us to question the goodness of our God, the love of our Savior, the purpose he has for our life, our relationship with him. Those are the real questions. We've got to deal with that stuff. And so I encourage you, I, today I give you permission to ask those questions. We all have those things in our lives that we, we, some of us have dealt with them. A lot of us probably have not because we've been told those questions don't need to be answered. Just believe. And it's okay to be Thomas and say, I'm not going to believe unless God shows up. Because when you come to God, you come to Jesus, you come to the spirit and you say, God, help my unbelief. He will. He will. And it may not be today, it may not be tomorrow. For me, it took a long time to work through it. But sure enough, he did. And so I want to encourage you to pull back from the back of your mind those things that you have repressed, those things that you have pushed out of your mind that are just, you think are too big of questions. You think there's no answer to. Bring them to this community. Bring them to the people of God. Put them before God. And we, together, we will ask the Spirit to help us work through these things. Because I promise you, Jesus is bigger than your concerns, your anxiety, your doubt. And what he wants more than anything, the entire purpose of his story is to come and do his work of reconciliation, of, of forgiveness, so that we can be brought to the point that John wants us to find. So that we can come to the point where we have this true, authentic, to the core of us belief that Jesus is our Lord and our God. That's what God wants for you. He wants to show himself to you that way. He wants you to know him that way. So I encourage you to look for him that way, to bring to him anything that stands in the way of you understanding or knowing that.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your servant, your disciple, your beloved disciple, John, who has written to us an astoundingly dense and rich story of your life, of your ministry here on earth. As he says, for the sole purpose of bringing us into right relationship with you, into full belief in your son as both man and God. And in this moment, as we go back to worship you for a moment, Lord, we just, we ask that you would search us and that you would help us pull out these things that stand in the way of that full belief. It may be intellectual curiosity or things that don't make sense. It may be pain and suffering that we have endured that doesn't make sense. It very well may be that we have rationalized things in our own brain to get through something and in doing so have not actually dealt with it. We've not brought it to you to have you heal and make right. So God, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would guide us in that healing process, in that journey, that we might go from mental ascension, the, the moment when we say, yes, Jesus is my savior, to the moment where we truly believe to our core that he is good, that he is Lord, and that he is God. We ask this in his name, in the power of your spirit. Amen.